So, well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for braving the weather here. Um, in fact, my lecture today is appropriate in a sense because I'm going to take you to the um, extreme heat uh, that we find in um, certain parts of the universe. Um, in fact, the beginning of the universe has been called the closest approximation to hell that we know about. But that I will not go into in any detail. But I want to tell you what the universe is made of, basically, and how we study the properties of the matter in the universe. So, to begin my Gresham lecture, um, let's just try to... Um, uh, define what matter is. Um, so if I look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, it's physical substance in general as distinct from mind and spirit. Um, in physics, that which occupies space and possesses rest mass and especially as distinct from energy. Okay, so that's what matter is. Um, we've wondered about matter for a long time. Um, Democritus perhaps was um, the first, the most famous person to have um, um, thought about matter being atomic. Um, by convention, sweet is sweet, bitter is bitter, hot is hot, cold is cold, colour is colour, but in truth there are only atoms and the void. That from the 5th century BC. And so jumping fast forward to um, one of the great expositors of physics, um, Richard Feynman, um, he said, um, all things are made of atoms, little particles that move around in perpetual motion, attracting each other when they are a little distance apart, which is why we're here, basically, um, um, but repelling upon being squeezed into one another. Also another reason for our being here, otherwise uh, we would be blown apart. Okay, so, um, and those are the properties of atoms and particles I'm going to try to shed a little light on, on them today. So, uh, what are we talking about? Well, there are protons. Um, they're the um, positively charged particle that's um, part of the atomic nucleus. And the electrons, the negatively charged particles, much lighter, that um, balance out the charge in the universe. So, at an atom is a mixture of protons and electrons. But also of some neutrons, which are basically like heavy but uncharged protons. Um, so that's the constituent of, of all elements. Um, then there are um, interesting particles um, which have a very tiny mass called neutrinos. And um, I'm going to tell you about those things and I will come then to some interesting applications to do with nuclear reactors. And you'll see that uh, we've made progress not all necessarily in the best directions, but there, there you are. Um, so first of all, protons. Well, one, uh, you know, you, you, you like to think that um, diamonds are forever, okay? A diamond is made of, of protons, among other things, and neutrons, etc., and electrons. Um, but in fact, protons are unstable. Diamonds are unstable. Um, and why do we think this? Well, one of the great goals of physics is trying to unify everything at very, very high energy. I mean, today, you know, protons are heavy particles, electrons and tight, light particles, opposite charges and all that, um, but very, very different, and they even obey different forces. Um, one more the strong nuclear interaction, one the electromagnetic force, and the weak also respond to weak nuclear reactions. So it's, it's, and they're very different strengths, but when you go to really high energy, physics 
likes to believe, and there's evidence for this, that things converge and we have a unified theory. And what this means is that um, um, protons and electrons somehow um, are part of the same stuff in the universe, but as the universe cools down, they separate. Uh, this means that when they're part of the same stuff, it means protons and electrons can convert into each other, you know, with um, neutrons playing a role, proton plus electron equals neutron, whatever. Um, but at high energy, that all stops. At low energy, that all stops. Um, but nevertheless, it must occur at a very low rate today if this unification is correct, which means that protons cannot be forever if the universe began in some unified sense as we, we think um, for many reasons, that, that's how things should have been at the beginning. Okay, um, so let me, and this is a prediction actually of unification. It predicts that protons should decay. Now, how can we test this? Well, there's a very simple test, okay? Um, my body, your body contains many protons, okay? If they were decaying, they would produce a gamma ray, and this gamma ray would give you cancer if there were enough of them. Okay, so we'd be dropping dead of cancer, everybody on the Earth, um, in years or, or, or weeks or whatever, if the protons were really unstable. Now, because we have an awful lot of atoms in our bodies, um, it could be very few. We don't exactly know how many atoms you need to give mutations to cause cancer, but one can guess these things. We know roughly what a fatal dose is of radioactivity. Um, we call that measuring units of rads, a thousand rads will kill you in a day, basically. Um, and, um, and in translating that into um, more useful units, um, this lethal dose, it's like a thousand watts over one second per person, which is roughly um, 10, it doesn't seem much, right? You know, 10, 10 light bulbs shining for a second or something. You know, that, that seems tiny, but if, if this energy is in the form of poisonous gamma rays, you are doomed, okay? And so you can set some limit because, um, it, you know, to the, an erg basically is roughly a thousand gamma rays. That's what it, in energy equivalent. So we have a huge number of gamma rays per gram, but a gram is an awful lot of atoms. And so translating this lethal dose, it turns out that um, if you had the tiny amount, 10 to the minus 14 of a gamma ray per year that each atom was exposed to, you'll be dropping dead, okay, within days, weeks, or certainly within a year. Okay, so that basically tells us what the lifetime, the minimum possible lifetime of the proton is. 10 to the 14th years, which is 10,000 times the age of the universe, which is roughly 10 billion years. Okay, so that seems an incredibly stable limit. You, you think you might not need to worry then, you know, things are going to be last much longer. The, fine, you know, we're, we're all here. We're not too many cancer rates attributed to, to gaining protons, we, we, we assume. Um, can you prove this? Can you do better? Well, it turns out that if I, a human body, you know, 100 kilograms, suppose I now go to do a, a controlled experiment. Instead of 100 kilograms of detector looking for these rare gamma rays, I now have 50,000 tons, okay? Enormous number of atoms, and I can monitor this, and I can look for the very, very rare decays of gamma rays, it just takes one gamma ray to give me a light flash if I have a certainly dark room when it interact when it's produced and ionizes, etc. Causes scintillations or whatever in, in, in this liquid. Um, and if the water's purified, it's a great, great system. Okay, so this is what we're doing. Uh, one experiment that's been looking for a few years, and you can improve the precision of the stability of the proton by a huge amount. 
Okay, so here's the experiment. Um, it's um, in an abandoned zinc mine in Japan, the biggest one currently running. And it was designed to look for proton decay events using 50,000 tons of highly purified water. And they look for the rare gamma ray induced flashes of light. All these little dots around here are, are phototubes, um, uh, thousands of them. Um, th they did have one catastrophe in this experiment when um, some years ago, one of the phototubes popped uh, and it caused like a chain reaction of popping phototubes. The whole experiment, you know, had to be rebuilt from scratch. But anyway, now it's working fine. Um, uh, this all gets filled with purified water and you, and you look for signals, um, light flashes that, that, that have color codes like this. And they've, they've seen nothing, okay? So they've not seen a single proton decay event. And from the fact that they're monitoring all these many, many atoms, they can say, we can do 20 factors of 10, 20 powers of 10 better than studying human bodies decaying. Okay, so now they have a minimum lifetime for the proton against decay into, you know, um, gamma ray plus, plus um, uh, whatever, particles, muons, etc., of 10 to the 20 times better, which is... Incredible, the, the universe is 10 to the 10th years, okay? So we're talking about protons of decay for many, many times the age of the universe. So we don't need to worry at all about protons, but we do worry because if the theory of unification is correct, we should eventually be seeing this decay. And there isn't that much room. So if we were to have a bigger experiment than this one and increase this limit by a factor of 10, a theory says you'd better be seeing the protons decay, otherwise your theory is wrong. And so our colleagues in Japan are preparing a million ton purified water detector to go in the same mine, which is being built over the next few years. And they will either discover the decay or revolutionize their understanding of physics, actually. Okay. Um, right. So now that's the proton. So, you know, we like to think that protons are fundamental um, building blocks of nature, but they're not actually. A proton, um, unlike the electron, which is basically a point particle, the proton is a composite particle. It's made of smaller particles called quarks, and there are three of them in the proton. And they're about a thousandth of the size of a proton, okay? Um, and um, electrons, as far as we can tell, are, you know, have no extension at all. They're point-like. And quarks are, are probably like that too. So electrons and quarks are the fundamental particles out, out of which the atoms and the nuclei of atoms are, are made. And, and, we, and our basic understanding of atomic physics is that um, you have a charged nucleus with protons and neutrons, and it's surrounded by a cloud of electrons, and the whole thing has, you know, no charge, things balance out, and it's um, and because you know these electrons tend to like to uh, the clouds tend to like to attach to other atoms. This this is how chemistry works basically, and this sort of mixture of clouds of electrons around positively charged nuclei controls all of chemistry too. Okay, so um, over the last um, few decades, we've developed a better understanding of the fundamental bits of nature, the fundamental particles. And here I've tried to show you um, the conclusions that came from these three gentlemen, each of whom got Nobel Prizes for their contributions. And they basically developed what we now call the standard model of physics, um, in which um, you have um, light particles, so electrons, 
and also neutrinos, which I'll come to in a moment, they're, they're particles of almost zero mass, the lightest ones we know, little particles, um, but we have measured their mass now. Um, and then partners of the electron called muons, which were first discovered in cosmic rays. Long before we started colliding detectors together, we used cosmic ray detection to prove these short-lived particles exist. We found them in the cosmic rays up at high altitude. By the time they'd have gotten to Earth, they'd have decayed. They were unstable, but we found them by looking for the cosmic ray, which was a natural collider when it ran into the atmosphere. It made, it made muons, and that's how we discovered them. We've since made them in, in colliders, of course. And so there are two types of muons. Um, and then there are particles which connect everything, um, the equivalents of the, of the photons for these particles, called bosons. Um, and, and then we come to the, um, to the quarks, and these are different types of quarks. All of them make up, um, um, uh, over here, all, all of them make up protons and neutrons. And, all, and this model um, had a prediction. There was one missing element from it, and this was called the Higgs boson, which is the, the way we can understand how particles acquire their masses. And this was predicted, and um, it took many, many years, and just three or four years ago they discovered it finally. And, um, um, and so that was a major triumph of, um, of the standard model. Okay, okay so um, now let me come to something truly bizarre, okay, because we've never seen a quark. All this is hypothesis. I mean, hypothesis led to a prediction and we then measured the Higgs boson, but we've never directly seen one of these particles. And the reason is they're such short-lived particles. Um, so um, the nucleus of an atom is a stable configuration, contains protons, which are themselves made of quarks, the fundamental particles. But we've never been, we can see the protons all right, okay, but we've never been able to separate the quarks. And the reason is the quarks are just... They hold together the proton and the neutrons that go with it into the nucleus of an atom, and um, they're stable. Um, and the forces between the quarks don't, even though they may have different charges, they don't repel each other. But we believe that um, outside of the nucleus, the stuff which keeps the quarks together um, simply doesn't exist. Um, and we, we think that quarks simply don't exist in, in free space. Okay? That's what the theory says, and, and that's what um, these guys basically got the um, Nobel Prize for, um, uh, among others. Um, but we, we're convinced that they're made of quarks. Now, I will show you, you know, one of these, um, even though we can't see the quarks directly, okay, we, we can see what the quarks decay. So over here, you're looking at, this is taken from the Large Hadron Collider, one of their experiments, with um, many, many detectors giving you these, uh, these, these light flashes from interacting particles. And, um, and you see the traces of particles decaying, um, uh, quarks decaying, basically. So we, we can see them decay. So that's, that's why we're sure they exist. We, we, see them, we see them die, basically. Okay. Um, now, you may wonder um, what all of this has got to do with the universe, okay, which is where I'm coming from now. So in this diagram of the history of the universe from the beginning to, to, to now, um, we have stars and galaxies. And then there was a time, as you go back in time, this is the arrow of time, which we call the Dark Ages. And the reason all this is so highly compressed is that the total time from here to here is the age of the Big Bang, which is 13.7 billion years. But you're now looking at most of that time. And this is just a few hundred um, 
million years over here, okay, and back here it's a few hundred thousand years. And this greenish thing is what we see when we look at the primordial radiation, the cosmic microwave background, the fossil radiation from the Big Bang. And so we can see back this far, and between those tiny fluctuations of the radiation when structure formed, we call this the Dark Ages, where we, there are no stars. We're beginning finally to understand how to look at that, but it's very, very indirect. But before then, things were really dense and hot, and the protons were so hot and crammed together that they were just quarks. And we call this the era of quark soup, if you like. And this is now one nanosecond after the Big Bang, which is why it seems so highly compressed over here. But, you know, that's how long it took. And then even before then, there was this period of very, very rapid expansion that we call inflation um, from the beginning. So that is sort of the, the history um, of how, you know, development of galaxies and stars and Finally, maybe because of dark energy, things are moving apart a bit faster today. So that, that's the whole story of the universe. Okay, um, so here's another mystery about all of this. Um, um, the quark soup was there. The, the, you know, the universe is this unique, really hot place we can study particle physics. That's, that's the lesson we're learning. Um, you can't reproduce the extreme conditions in accelerators. You can get close to make, seeing quarks decay, but you can't have this incredible dense version that was the early. It's a wonderful laboratory for studying things. So here's one prediction that one might have expected, but we know obviously is another thing that is wrong, just as protons don't decay on a short time scale. Where is the antimatter? I mean, if you have a truly symmetric beginning, everything is unified, there should be as much matter as antimatter, okay? Therefore, you know, out there, there should be stars and galaxies made of antimatter. Maybe there are planets made of antimatter. Maybe one day if we ran into a Martian and we shook hands from the Earth with a Martian, an anti-Martian, right, there'd be a dramatic explosion, right? Because matter and antimatter annihilate. They give you pure energy, um, and this simply is not happening. We're not seeing a universe glowing with gamma rays. So I think if we met a Martian, we probably could shake hands. It wouldn't be a problem. But, you know, um, we're pretty sure there are no anti... Lots, there's not lots of antimatter out there. And there must be very little, actually. There must be a fraction of a fraction, a fraction of percent just because we're not seeing the universe glowing gamma rays. Okay. Um, so where did all this come from? Well... We measure in the microwave background all these photons, quantum radiation, okay, lots of them. And we believe that early in the universe, um, when there was a lot more matter, and probably antimatter too, very, very early, that, that matter antimatter did annihilate and produce photons, which is why we have so many photons today. So the photons we measure, which are most of the quote, particles, far more photons, quanta of light, than there are actual protons in the universe today by a huge factor, that tells us that once the universe was very, very close to being symmetric. But here's the rub. It can't be completely symmetric, otherwise we wouldn't be here. If it was exactly balanced between matter and antimatter, there'd be nothing left over at the end, just, just gamma rays cool down to radiation, photons. So there must have been a very, very tiny asymmetry between the matter and antimatter built into the beginning of the universe, at the very beginning of the Big Bang. And it's a tiny amount. It's about a few parts in a billion, okay? Or 10 billion, that's the number. Roughly one point in a billion, so during the first nanosecond. So, you know, what, what is this telling us? Where did this all come from? Um, well, I'll come to that in a moment. Um, so the, the, the moral is the universe is a wonderful test bed for these ideas about particle physics, about the nature of what matter is and the elementary particles. And, and 
If you were trying to do the same thing with a particle collider, you know, the, the longer the collider, the more you accelerate, okay, more space from Mach bouncing, you know, building up magnetic field and pushing things along. Um, that's how colliders work, basically, with electromagnetic accelerators. Um, you'd have to build something. So at, at CERN, we have an accelerator, a tunnel, a circular tunnel, with um, a, di a diameter of some 27, uh, 30 kilo uh, kilometers. You, and that gets us up to huge energies, certainly. But if you wanted to test what matter is really made of to test the beginning of the universe stuff, you'd have to build an accelerator going halfway to the moon. Okay, which is hugely different and totally inconceivable in terms of building it ever, in terms of cost. So the wonderful thing then is the early universe is a natural laboratory for studying how matter is made. So that, that's, um, that, that, that's wonderful for cosmology and it's also attracted enormous attention from the people trying to understand particles, the particle physics community, they're, they're becoming cosmologists too. Um, and so then we believe that in the very beginning of the universe there was this unification period and then there's a period now where the, the strong and the weak forces are very different. Quarks and protons are very different from electrons. The forces that hold them together are totally different. And so there was a, some sort of transition and we, we call this a transition phase from this symmetrical stage to now the highly asymmetrical stage and when the force is separated and it's a bit like... Um, uh, the one we're most familiar with maybe is, especially today, is ice, uh, the melting of ice, right? So, um, you know, we're lucky that we have lots of fish. And the reason, and, and if the oceans did freeze completely, there'd be no fish, okay? And the reason they don't freeze, that lake, for example, um, only the surface freezes, is that this transition of um, uh, the melting of ice releases energy, okay? That, that keeps, stops too much ice from forming. Uh, so this is the energy in a, f a transition of phase from ice to water. And the same thing, something similar in terms of physics happened as the universe cooled down. And um, this energy which was released at the very, very beginning um, caused a huge increase in expansion. We call that inflation. So that's the origin of why we think the universe began very tiny and suddenly inflated as the, if you like, the ice melted, the, the, the symmetry vanished um, and um, became um, a universe much more akin as, with the size of the one we have today. Um, okay, so let's get, let's get back to these fundamental forces. Um, so this is a cartoon that shows you how things work. So this is the energy scale. And so th this is where we are today, where electric forces, magnetic forces are very different from nuclear forces. Um, and these are the forces that control radioactivity. Um, with the Large Hadron Collider, we can sort of probe this range roughly over here. Only by going to the beginning of the universe can we start getting to these really high energies. There's a big mystery at the beginning because we have not got the ultimate unification theory, which must include gravity as well as the nuclear forces. So we have a big question mark at the beginning. Um, many, many physicists are trying desperately to look. Einstein spent most of his life looking for this too. He failed. And many are still looking for the unification of all the fundamental forces, the four of them, okay? Um, but so far, we've, we're pretty sure that we have found um, the strong force, the weak force, the magnetic force, how these all get at high enough energy, these unify together. So, what was that, 
Uh, so, sorry, so this is the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, electromagnetic force, and finally gravity. Okay? Weak, weak nuclear force. So that's the force that controls radioactivity, okay? That, that um, controls nuclear decay of unstable isotopes, which I'm going to come to in a second. Okay. Anyway, so this is the, um, uh, the, 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 the big um, mystery at the beginning, but apart from that, we, we have a, a good theoretical understanding um, of how this happened, and we're trying very much to prove that this really did happen by testing our theories of, of cosmology, of inflation, for example, where these forces would have, the separation of forces would have had some implication for cosmology. So inflation then, when this transition in phase happens, when the forces separate, does give you all this energy, and the result is the universe expands dramatically by an enormous amount, when you inject this energy, and instead of being maybe very tiny, very irregular, just like blowing up a balloon, um, it becomes incredibly smooth and very, very big. Okay? So we, this naive theory, at first it seemed naive, now we, we're more confident in it, could explain you know, the size of the universe and the relative smoothness, that it's the same everywhere you look. And these are the two people who pioneered this particular theory, uh, Alan Guth and Andrew Lindy in the 1981. Okay, so now let's get back to matter versus antimatter. Okay, so that's, you know, one implication of particle physics, why these are so big. Wonderful story. Um, okay, what is this asymmetry that we have in nature? Well, believe it or not, left-handedness predominance in nature, amino acids... All the ones that make life are left-handed. So left by left-handed, I mean, um, if you imagine moving a corkscrew forward, it can either turn right or left, okay? And so we, we call turning left left-handed uh, and right right-handed. And, and so there's a unique sense with propagation of being left or right. And it's like being, you know, if you look at yourself in a mirror, left and right switch, but if you are, you know, you can always imagine a different symmetry in the mirror. So amino acids are all left-handed, and I once read a book called The Left Hand of Creation, and the story there was that, you know, when we look at amino acids, they essentially, all the ones that, um, um, that, that are involved in life um, uh, are left-handed, and there are very rare examples of right-handed ones, and um, they simply, um, uh, you know, left-handed and right-handed just don't fit together as well, so once you imagine start developing DNA with left-handed amino acids, then it sort of it runs away and everything becomes more asymmetrical. Okay, so that, that's, that's the life story. In a, in a nutshell, things are left-handed. When we find amino acids in space, in meteorites, they're a mixture of left and right, so something has, has affected their distribution when life evolved on the Earth. We don't exactly know what that is. Anyway, so moving back to the universe, this is now the story of one of the greatest um, physicists of the 20th century, Andrei Sekharov, whose most notable achievement probably was that he um, was the father of the Soviet hydrogen bomb. Um, so he um, was able to, um, uh, he designed this basically, um, with as far as we know, little help from... Um, from the, uh, from the Americans, because it came very soon after the, the US development. And, but he, you know, he went on to regret uh, the use of nuclear bombs very much and testing of them and got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1975. Anyway, as a side effect of his nuclear work, he, he was a cosmologist as well. He 
in particle physics. And he was fascinated by this problem of why is there so much more matter than antimatter in the universe. And so he said that, um, well, you know, we normally, um, you might want to think that baryons, you know, uh, that is um, the, the number of um, protons over antiprotons, they're both baryons, should be equal, okay? But uh, in, in, and you, whenever you make them by <coughs> having nuclear interactions, you should conserve the, the excess of one over the other. Well, he said, no, that can't be right. You must violate this somehow. You must develop an excess of one over the other. And this is what's eventually going to lead to the asymmetry in nature, the fact that we don't have any anti-people around us, anti-stars around us or whatever. Um, and um, it was a challenge because in the grand unification idea of everything, things really are symmetrical. So this had to break down at some point. So first of all, there had to be some built-in violation of the net number of particles over antiparticles, um, then um, you have then these particles or antiparticles, when they decay into electrons, or, or the positive electrons called positrons, um, they can't actually balance each other. There must be some asymmetry too, otherwise you'd also end up with exactly the same thing. And then finally, um, <coughs> the universe had better be expanding, so when things do finally decay, you're left over with... Um, with uh, whatever is left, and that, that would explain what you have today. Okay. So that was what, what he was um, uh, arguing for. Um, okay, and um, that is our basis of our current understanding of this. Okay, so now let's um, talk a little bit about, I, I've said a lot about protons. <coughs> now let me move briefly on to electrons. So um, they were discovered, electricity was discovered by the Greeks, um, if you um, rub amber, then that, as you know, gives you static, and that's electricity, basically. Um, and the electron was discovered by Joseph Thomson, um, measured empirically um, at the end of the 19th century. Um, then it was realised um, that, um, uh, um, instigated by, by Maxwell, James Clerk Maxwell, uh, Scott, um, that um, when you move electrons... Um, when you accelerate them, <coughs> they make waves, electromagnetic waves. And these are the basis of all we know about radio waves. Okay, so moving electrons, accelerating electrons make waves. And it was first applied, ideas like this, by, you know, um, wired, wired connections, um, transmitting, um, you know, vo voice into current impulses, so uh, using wave-like properties of electrons. And, and by Marconi, and that by, this is by Alexander Graham Bell, and um, also by um, Marconi, who um, first did transmission without wires of radio waves, and showed that. And so this is now the basis of our whole modern society with radio, television, internet, whatever. Okay, okay. So um, this came about in the early 20th century. <coughs> so particles, electrons are particles, but they're also waves. And so the idea that waves are particles and vice versa. Um, was um, first brought up by um, a French ar aristocrat physis physicist called Louis de Broglie. Um, and this, of course, has been used in devices like the electron microscope. We can use the wave-like part of electrons to focus electron beams and get incredibly small because they're tiny wavelengths, incredibly high resolution. And so the, the, the classical notion of an electron looks something like this, um, that um, invented by also Niels Bohr, one of the founders of, of the quantum theory, um, that here we have the nucleus with our neutrons and protons, electrons going orbits around it. 
Okay, and so that's the cloud of electrons. In fact, um, the quantum theory showed that this, this model is much more naive, and there's something called intrinsic uncertainty um, invented by Werner Heisenberg, the famous Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is that you can never exactly say where an electron is. <coughs> you can only define it with a certain probability, its position. Um, and this is the probability of observing electrons. They, and here's the central nucleus, and the electron will have some position in this orbit, but you can never say exactly it's at a certain point. Okay. Okay. Um, so let me stop there with electrons and move on to neutrons, the third major component of matter. And maybe um, one of the most crucial components of all, because the neutron weighs very slightly less than the proton. And it's this difference between the proton and the neutron, when you combine them together, um, you release this difference in mass. And by Einstein's famous equation, energy equals mass times c squared, you produce energy. And so if you, so you start off with hydrogen, which is pure protons, and you build up helium, which is a mixture of protons and neutrons. And by doing that, you can release the mass difference, and that is the source of all energy. So... Um, Electrons and protons uh, and neutrons make atoms, and we call the result the periodic table of the elements. And um, again, this was also a discovery from um, the late 19th century by um, uh, Russian Grigor <coughs> Mendeleev. And so this, th these are all the, um, the, the color coding in, in, indicates groups of elements. I mean, these are the rare, the noble elements, supposedly, like argon and so forth, and, and you have metals on one side and... Um, non-metals on the other, but ignore all the colours, but basically you can see that all of these elements, uh, the most from up to element number 94, wherever that is, are natural elements. All the rest were made in accelerators um, uh, and are unstable, and we go up now to uh, element 103 or thereabouts. Okay, so these are the, these are the various combinations of electrons, um, in the orbits, and protons and neutrons to balance the charges in the nuclei. And, and the numbers mean you have up to, um, this is the number of, of charges that you have. Uh, this, so hydrogen would have a charge of one and helium of two, uh, two protons in the nucleus, and we're going up to 103 okay, charges, combined with various numbers of neutrons to give you the mass, the heavier masses. Okay, um, so how do you release this energy difference between electrons and protons? Again, um, the genius behind this was Hans Bethe, a German-American scientist, and he showed that when you <coughs> bring protons together <coughs> and eventually build them up into helium, you do release this mass difference um, by nuclear reactions, and these go on inside the sun. And so this is the source of energy in the sun. It has to be incredibly hot to bring two protons together, many millions of degrees, in fact, um, but that's sufficient to do that, and um, it's caused by the gravity of the sun, the center's very hot, and this is naturally a force that can produce the power that shines at us, and um, we're very grateful for that. So the bottom line, then, is that all stars, in fact, um, are powered by fusion of, 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 of protons and, um, uh, and neutrons, nuclear, together. And in fact, all the elements up to iron are made by this type of fusion involving just bringing together things of thermal energy. And so it's sort of interesting that um, you can divide up all the elements. So this is the number of the elements of different masses, okay, 
going up starting from hydrogen. And so there are elements that go up to, to roughly um, a bit about iron over here. Okay. Um, this is the peak of iron. And then you get rarer, very heavy elements. This is the, basically the particle number, the number of charges in the nucleus. And if you look at the stability of a nucleus, you find that iron is the most stable of all the nuclei. So when you fuse things together, you build up to iron. Uh, stars heat up as they shrink and, and age. Um, and you build up to iron, and then you can't get any more energy out. Now, the only energy after that is from something catastrophic, um, which must involve um, something like an explosion of the star. Um, and I, I show you that example. I've talked about that already in these lectures. And that explosion then irradiates so many neutrons that you can then use um, capturing neutrons to make all these heavy elements. So this is, you can think of this as cooking, and then this is something much more violent um, uh, that involves... Uh, to bring things together. So fusion give, gives you energy, um, and here it, you have to provide lots of energy to make, build things up. Okay. So that's the difference. Iron is, is like the ultimate slag heap of the universe. Okay, so um, this gets us into um, the notion of uh, what we do with thermonuclear fission as well as fusion, because some elements are going to be unstable. And if you have an unstable element, that will break up and give you gamma rays and release energy, uh, maybe in a violent way. So if you have the right number of neutrons to protons, they roughly balance each other, the things are stable. Um, but all the elements which d have large excesses one way or the other um, are radioactive because they break up, okay? And they give you gamma rays as well as these products. Um, and um, we, we call this process of breaking up beta decay, and if... Um, and you can convert either protons to neutrons or neutrons to protons. Um, and it can e either if you have too many or too few. Um, so this is a way of understanding why it is that we have a stable regime of nuclei. So this is the belt of the valley of stability, we call this. Okay? As you go up in, in, in mass element, if I have too many neutrons or too few neutrons, I, there are lots of isotopes, they can be made, but they, they're unstable. Okay? <coughs> okay, and so they can... Um, and so we can study, we can, by you know, having collisions in accelerators, we study how all of this works, we can synthesize many of these things and, and, and work out how, how radioactive they are, how rapidly they decay. But basically we, we can understand why it is that many elements, hydrogen, helium onwards, up to iron and way beyond, silicon, these are the stable elements, there are isotopes of them, that is with a certain number of neutrons and protons that are, them, that are the stable ones, and then you have others that are unstable one way or the other. Okay. So what I want to do now is, is talk to you a bit more about radioactivity. So <clears throat> the unsung pioneer of this field is Mary Curie, of course, and she um, um, managed, you know, was credited with two Nobel Prizes, actually, for her work in, um, uh, in discovering uh, radioactivity. And using radium was not necessarily the best thing for her to do in those days, and um, she, she did die relatively young of probably cancer. Um, the, um, before her, um, um, the discovery of activity was Ernest Rutherford, and the neutron was discovered by James Chadwick, um, both in the UK, and Mary Curie uh, was Polish but worked in France all of her career. 
Okay, and so the idea is that if you have, again, proton plus neutron, that's very, very stable, that's a hydrogen nucleus, but as soon as you have an excess of neutrons, you can get, or a serious deficit, when you build up heavier things, things can be radioactive and you get X-rays, gamma rays, whatever, which are the more dangerous things. So again, going back to what we see around us, the Earth is not a good place to do this because there's no helium. The second most abundant element of the universe after hydrogen was discovered in the sun. So you wouldn't, you know, so the Earth isn't necessarily your best place to study what we call cosmic abundance distribution. You want a larger sample of stars which should have everything in. Okay, so looking at the sun and, and the solar system, then as you go to heavier elements, you see hydrogen dominates, then helium is next, and then less and less elements with a, an excess near, near, near iron, and then things go down. So again, this, this shows you a blown up version of this. And so here, here from hydrogen, helium, so these are all the relative amounts of these things. These are all factors of 10. So hydrogen is immensely more abundant than whatever, you know, platinum or uranium, as we, as we know, of course. But, you know, nevertheless, you, you, can, you measure all of these things. And you notice this interesting zigzagging, okay? So this is between odd and even nuclei. And this zigzagging in abundance <laughs> is proof that it's nuclear reactions that did this, okay? So this is a natural prediction of, of nuclear fission and um, nuclear fusion, that you naturally get this, um, this odd-even structure of the relative abundances. And, and we believe that when you go to the light ones below iron, all of these are made in stars. First, you burn hydrogen as in the sun, and then when the star heats up, it gets hot enough in the middle to burn its helium and so on. Eventually, you end up with iron, when the, that's the end of the star. Um, and um, if it's massive enough, it may then explode, collapse even more, and give you the environment which can then make all these heavier elements by producing lots and lots of neutrons in that explosion. Um, and we call that a supernova process, for example. And, um, and these things where the star does not explode, that might be what we end up as a white dwarf, which is the likely fate of the sun in uh, five billion years' time. So, um, to summarise, the Big Bang makes helium. We're pretty sure the stars make too little of it. But almost all the other stuff is made in stars. Uh, the lower mass stars, like the sun, to make the elements up to iron, and then the massive stars, um, which are unstable at the end, to make all the heavier elements, because they have this wonderful supply of um, nuclear instability and neutrons to build up all your heavy elements. OK, um, so here, here is um, briefly then the, a picture of a star uh, that, like the sun, the future of the sun, and in the centre, you see a white dwarf star, this very compact ball of heavy stuff, iron, maybe not, in this case, maybe more oxygen and, and carbon, um, maybe traces of iron too. That's the end point. And all of this stuff has been shed off as the centre heats up and burns away more and more effectively. And all this stuff is being shed off to be the, eventually infiltrate the interstellar clouds from which our solar system then condenses. So this explains where all the carbon in our bodies come from. It's come from events like this. And then as you move, um, so, th th so this is the magic line of, of protons versus neutrons. Um, and as you go more and more up in neutrons, you have now to go to more exotic environments to make these things. And that involves exploding stars. And that's, this is an example of an exploding star. Um, um, and, uh, and this is the... Uh, um, uh, and eventually you'll, you'll make a, a, what we call a neutron star or a black hole in the centre. But all this stuff is now highly neutron um, radiated and gives you the heavier elements. So that's, um, 
the story for neutrons. I'll say a little about neutrinos. Um, <coughs> they were discovered because there was something missing when people studied the first collisions, radioactive interactions between particles, better decays. Something was carrying away energy that was not a particle, was not an electron or a positive electron. And um, the name was invented, uh, a little neutral particle, little neutron, um, sorry. Um, and, um, and this is the source of radioactivity. And these two gentlemen, um, Enrico Fermi, Wolfgang Pauli, were the, were the, were the pioneers of, of neutrinos. And um, it was invented to account for radioactivity, basically, um, when you have too many protons uh, versus neutrons or vice versa. And, and these things carry energy away, basically, um, uh, because other, you know, there was no mass coming out. But since then, we've studied them and we've found they do have a mass. Okay, and how can you study them? Well, they're incredibly weakly interacting particles. Neutrinos pass through us very freely, um, far more easily than any other particle can. They, they're not particularly dangerous. But to detect them, you need a huge amount of material to have a probability of observing one neutrino. And, so, and they were first um, detected um, in, in experiments um, in mines deep underground to avoid the cosmic rays from the Earth's atmosphere that give you a contaminating signal and produce neutrinos too. So you want to avoid all of that stuff. Um, in, the, in the first experiment, the pioneering one, they had 100,000 gallons of cleaning fluid. Why cleaning fluid? Because there's a reaction between a chlorine atom, um, uh, which um, becomes a radioactive argon atom when it absorbs neutrino. Very rare. And so what you do is you, is you study 100,000 gallons of cleaning fluid. You, you, you um, bubble um, there, uh, every few months. You then bu bubble some uh, rare gas through it to pick up any radioactive argon, and you look for the radioactivity, and, and, and they manage to detect neutrinos um, uh, in, in this experiment. Um, and, um, and in particular, um, these were neutrinos that came from the center of the sun. So this was the, so one now had direct proof that the nuclear reactions, the proton, proton, and helium, have to produce neutrinos, and finally they were discovered <coughs> by this experiment involving cleaning fluid. <coughs> Since then, there are many more experiments. I showed you this one already. Um, this was the one in Japan where they have these 50,000 gallons of ultra-purified water. You see the engineers going around testing the phototubes before they will, will fill this even further. Um, again, they um, de detected the fact that neutrinos coming from the sun, but there was a major discovery they made too because it turned out that the neutrinos that the previous people had found <coughs> from the sun, there were too few of them. They missed by a factor of three. We know exactly how much the sun radiates. Um, it's a wonderfully uh, precise machine, um, the sun, and they found too few. And it was the new experiment that, uh, um, that looked for this di difference. <coughs> and a combination of uh, this experiment and, and, a, and a later one in, in Canada, <coughs> um, also in a mine, found that um, neutrinos actually change from the type of the electron neutrino to ones associated with muons, the other light particles, electron-like, and the, the chance of our getting them, and since there are three types altogether, we get one-third <coughs> that arrives at the Earth. And that was proven by these two um, types of experiments. Okay. <coughs> In the future, um, there are new experiments going on, and we're gonna, it's a wonderful future, actually, because um, what we're going to discover... What is predicted by the theory is not just that there are no, this is the energy of neutrinos. What, what they've measured up to now is, is a, just, you know, a broad, range, <coughs> a broad range of energy. Excuse me. <coughs> but what you predict in particular 
Uh, neutrinos come at a very specific energy to test the reactions, and these are what we call neutrino spectral lines, features of neutrinos. New experiments will look for those and get even, learn even more about the sun. So the experiments we've done so far that I've talked about just, just measure this part. They, they measure neutrinos, they measure the efficiency of neutrinos, but the new experiment's going to look down here at low energies and get much more detail. So that's another major activity in the future for the whole field. Okay. Um, finally, um, let me tell you about nuclear reactors. Okay. So here's the most important one of all, um, the one on the left here, the sun. Um, it's incredibly uh, inefficient. Um, this is the number of watts the sun produces. The Earth captures a tiny fraction, okay, about 10 to minus um, 9, one billionth of all the energy. All the rest is waste. It goes out into space. So we conjecture that some future civilization will do a better job than we have so far at using solar energy. In the meantime, the best we can do on the Earth is um, this um, dam, hydroelectric dam, which gets 22 gigawatts, so a tiny fraction of what the Earth needs, but that's our biggest man-made nuclear um, hydro um, reactor, not using the nuclear power, but of course water power. Um, we're trying to reproduce the uh, effects of nuclear reactions, uh, thermonuclear fusion in the lab. These will be the first steps to controlling nuclear fusion. Um, which would be, a, a, in principle, a wonderful source of energy, much more efficient than um, uh, uh, nuclear fission, um, because that's um, it, current nuclear reactors, are, um, you know, which used uranium-235, you know, very messy things. But if you could actually make energy from light stuff, from water, say, or hydrogen, um, then you'd be doing um, a much cleaner job. And people are designing experiments to test for this. No success yet, but they're on the way to showing that in principle it can be possible in the next 50 years probably. Then um, here's another um, application of nuclear fusion, maybe not the um, ones that we should be proudest of, but there was an epoch um, that we did many, um, uh, used the first nuclear bombs um, uh, in Hiroshima, uh, for example, um, and um, then did many years of testing, okay, and... Um, going up from the original 15, this is dynamite equivalent of explosion, 15 kilotons of dynamite equivalent, going up to many millions of tons um, um, in, um, uh, you know, with um, French and US tests. Um, um, uh, this is, these two are US tests and Russian tests as well. And the Russians were even discussing uh, using nuclear uh, fusion to develop big dams and do... Uh, uh, but all, the, all, of the, all of this has long since passed. We're now living in a more civilized era. With um, Okay, so to summarize um, where we are, um, I've said that Big Bang makes only the light, mostly helium, but tiny traces of, of other elements. And that's simply because the massive ones are not stable. You can't fuse things together and build up all the heavy elements. Stars make helium as well, a small amount of it, but all the other elements. And then supernovae give you all these neutrons uh, because the extreme temperatures are in the centres to make um, uh, all the elements. Okay, so that sort of is the story. Um, my final point is that um, here is one of the most curious things in the whole subject. In um, Gabon in France, is a uranium mine, okay? And um, in this uranium mine, it's one of the world's most important uranium mines, the French uh, scientists um, found traces um, of excess uranium-235. Now, that isotope 
is critical for making bombs, and it's got a certain age as, as its partner isotope, uranium, the dominant one, 100 times more, uranium-238. And this a half-flight of uranium-238 is about 4 billion years, and from this you can actually measure the age of the Earth, okay, by measuring the amount of, of product relative to what you began with in uranium. And so when they studied the uranium deposits in this mine, they, 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 they found to their big surprise that the amount of uranium-235, 1% of all uranium in this enriched uranium region, was miss a tiny amount was missing. A few percent was missing. And so this worried them for a while, and then they finally realized that, aha, um, once about, and from dating, they figured this out, about two billion years ago, there was a natural explosion deep in the mine, probably caused by seepage of underground water, um, this was a uranium rich to start with, and the water acts as a neutron moderator, stops them flying away, and enables you to get more chain reactions. And so that seems to be the story. It's the one example we have of a natural nuclear reactor two billion years ago in the universe. Okay, that's, uh, okay. Um, so my final comment, I think, um, the, 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 what I've told you about so far doesn't work okay, completely. We've been um, looking for new, uh, you know, what does work. So the Higgs boson was a wonderful thing. I, I mentioned that before. These two gentlemen um, uh, are two of the primary people that found it, um, and it confirmed our standard model. But what's missing is it can't account for neutrinos, which have a small mass. That's why they oscillate, and we see one-third of them. Um, they don't include gravity, and they don't account for dark matter. So finally, um, the new thing that's come into this field... It's called string theory. And the idea now is that we no longer have point masses. I said the electron was a point mass, the quark was a point mass. So the new theory says, well, maybe we need something new. Instead of having point masses, let's make them um, not, and this symbolizes interactions of particles, point mass particles, um, with each other to come in, two, two new ones come out. That's some sort of uh, um, complex uh, interaction. Instead, let's imagine these particles are, are little strings, okay, tubes of string in some energetic sense, okay, instead of being point-like. And so this has been a, an intriguing theory because it's had, um, it's got a lot of equations in. This is one of the prime um, expositors of string theory. But the beauty of string theory is that um, it can account, it's our best hope at the moment of going beyond the standard model of particle physics. It has not succeeded uh, because although it can explain many things in nature, it has not been tested. It occurs at such high energy, this is the energy of stuff at the beginning of the universe, effectively, or the mass, that it's untestable, unreproducible. Okay, so this has led to an intriguing controversy. Uh, we have people like Brian Greene um, writing, one, I recommend these books, writing wonderful elegies to string theory, um, uh, the, the quest for the ultimate theory, and skeptics, um, string theory is a theory that's not even wrong. Okay, the failure. Okay, so there you are. Um, um, I think in, we know we've made enormous advances in, in, in understanding what the matter is. We haven't got the ultimate theory yet. Um, so the usual you know, thing you say now is at this point, give us some more funding. Um, we want to build bigger and bigger telescopes to look at the beginning of the universe, or we want to build bigger and bigger particle colliders to go beyond what we can do at the LHC in, in Geneva. Or have we, in fact, reached the limit of what we can do, given any reasonable funding source? Um, you know, uh, to give you one final example, a new telescope, which would have been had 100 times the field of view of the Hubble telescope, done a wonderful job studying the universe, 
would cost roughly um, half, a, half a, a, an aircraft carrier, a nuclear aircraft carrier, and it was just cancelled by, um, by the American administration. So, so, you know, because they want to prioritise other things. So we're at a point now, this is just one, one trivial example, of where we seriously have to decide um, what to do next in... Um, in um, fundamental physics. Do we just build bigger and bigger or maybe you have to just be, be cleverer? So thank you, that, that's my final message. <laughs>